You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. Today on the show we're going to be having a continuation of a discussion and indeed a two-part series on the topic of repression and the law. Basically the Melbourne Activist Legal Support has has organised a series of public panels and trainings and Melbourne Activist Legal Support um, organised the first event on Thursday just gone, which I believe was the 24th of August, and there were several speakers on, on that agenda, one of them being Michael Stanton, who we're going to be interviewing shortly. And Mike will actually be giving a report back um, about the event. And, and the other speaker who I interviewed last week was Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective. And... Chris also gave an overview of his charge regarding the charge of of incitement and looked at the right to protest as well, particularly focusing on the COVID-19 and and how that's affected it. She's not going to be on the show today, but um, Maria O'Sullivan actually um, also came on as well. And, and, and was a speaker. After that, after Michael, we'll be speaking with Felicity. And Felicity Jerry is, is a QC. She's a barrister. And she's going to be attending and being a speaker at another event on the 11th of September. And I will give details about that event um, as, as, as the show goes on. In the meantime, I will read out... Um, Michael's bio. Michael, Michael is, a, is a barrister who practices in criminal and administrative law. He has appeared in a wide range of matters, including criminal appeals before the Court of Appeal, Royal Commissions and Inquests. He was junior counsel for an appellant in Tony Strickland and various other roles as well. Um, Basically, today, we're going to be speaking with him about the Charter of Human Rights. 
Michael has a particular interest in the operation and effect of the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act 2006, having completed his Masters in Human Rights Law at the London School of Economics and Political Science. So without any further ado, we're going to be speaking with Michael shortly. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Do you need to take a break from the abundance of COVID-19 coverage? Remember, 3CR produces a range of podcasts along with audio on demand and radio online that lets you curate your own playlist. Check out our website at 3cr.org.au for all the options. There are documentaries, specialist music shows, historical features and so much more. Take a break when you need to. Stay well and stay connected. 3CR, radio for the community since 1976. And you're back with the Doing Time show and we're going to be speaking with Michael Stanton. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. How are you? Uh, it's been a very long day today, Michael. <laughs> but yes, I'm fine. Thank you very much. And thanks so much for coming onto the show. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Now, also, before we actually get into the material, I wanted to give you a very personal apology in regards to the bio um, because I wanted to really stick to the most relevant bits to the event. So I hope you didn't mind that I didn't read it out or all of it. No worries at all. No worries. Thanks. All good, Michael. Which you've done. Look, it's very impressive. You've done some amazing stuff and and some amazing trials as well. But um, cheers. It's it's all good. But in regards to the the forum, I'm wondering if you would be able to discuss with listeners the what's happening with human rights right now and talk about the charter and how that is relevant to the right to protest, in particular, to what's happening in Victoria currently? Sure. Well, we're living in extraordinary times at the moment, uh, obviously, with this state of emergency and, indeed, a state of disaster. And uh, as part of the state of emergency uh, being declared, that's given the power to the Chief Health Officer and delegates to issue these uh, binding directions. So such as the stay-at-home directions that we've all been required to comply with um, since the state of emergency was declared, so for a number of months now. So um, it really is an extraordinary state of affairs where people are limited in their freedom of movement, in their uh, privacy, um, having to wear masks when they go out and about. Um, you know, this really is an extraordinary uh, imposition on human rights and perhaps most clearly with the hard lockdown on the housing towers um, where for the residents there, they weren't even permitted to leave to uh, work or to shop or even for exercise whilst they were subject to those hard uh, lockdown measures. So these extraordinary powers all stem from the uh, Public Health and Wellbeing Act, which allows these uh, directions to be made. Um, Now... In relation to human rights in Victoria, we have the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act, and there's a real uh, live issue as to 
how the charter uh, affects um, potentially the stay-at-home directions themselves, the interpretation of the stay-at-home directions and the uh, conduct of public authorities in Victoria, such as uh, police and authorised officers and indeed the uh, Chief Health Officer. Absolutely. And can you talk about Section 38 of the Charter? Sure. So that's the um, duty on public authorities, and that uh, provides that a public authority is required to act lawfully, uh, sorry, to act compatibly with the Charter, uh, with Charter rights. And um, also the the public authority uh, must uh, give proper consideration to Charter rights. So there's two different duties uh, on public authorities, which are defined as including, uh, specifically including Victoria Police, for example. Uh, There's the duty, it's unlawful, in fact, for them to act incompatibly with human rights unless there's no other option uh, under the... um, due to their enabling legislation, or they um, have to give due consideration to human rights when they're making a decision. And has that happened? I mean, is civil action protected? Is civil action protected? Uh, Look, I mean, people would be able to to potentially try to challenge... uh, the, the making of directions. I think it would be difficult for a variety of reasons. There is an issue about whether or not in making effectively delegated legislation or statutory instruments, public authorities themselves are um, affected by Section uh, 38. There was a case in the federal court um, concerning the Occupy Melbourne protest a number of years ago, which would probably seem to indicate that in exercising the powers to effectively draw up these uh, directions. Um, The Chief Health Officer isn't um, bound by Section 38, but um, there's another section of the Charter which is uh, highly important, highly significant, which is Section 32, and that's the interpretive provision. And that provides that uh, any statutory provision has to be interpreted so far as it's possible to do so consistently with its purpose in a way uh, consistent with human rights. And there's a very strong argument that the the stay-at-home directions are um, subordinate instruments um, and because they have a legislative character and they apply to um, the world at large, effectively, to all of us in Victoria without discrimination. And they sort of have a legislative character and um, with, you know, a a consequence of significant penalties for non-compliance. And so, accordingly, they should be interpreted um, consistently with human rights. It doesn't sound like the Charter of Human Rights has done much good over the years. Even though it's there, it, it sounds it sounds as if public authorities such as the police have not adhered to it. Um, there's been some significant decisions in terms of the uh, the operation and effect of the charter, and uh, and it can make a real difference uh, in practical terms. Um, a couple of examples would be um, there was a, a, a prosecution of the Max Brenner protest a number of years ago uh, now, and um, where there was a demonstration at the Max Brenner at the uh, Queen Vic building in. Um, at the QV building in the city in Melbourne. And 
Um, there was an issue there about willful trespass. There was an offence of willful trespass, and, and there was an issue about how should that offence be interpreted. Um, and there were different um, competing interpretations. One was that you can willfully trespass if you um, merely uh, willfully go somewhere where you're not entitled to be and then refuse to leave once you're asked. Or there was an alternative interpretation, which was you had to intend to commit an offence, uh, and that was part of your intention when you were trespassing. And the Charter rights, and in particular the, the rights that are relevant to protests, like uh, the right to freedom of expression and peaceful assembly, were very significant in leading to a, uh, a more strict interpretation of willful trespass, which was more difficult for the prosecution to prove and led to an acquittal for a number of uh, protesters on that um, on that offence. So there is that, that's one practical example of where the Charter, in the context of um, protests, um, had um, did have a significant effect. Yeah. Oh, that's that's good. So there has been some precedent set then. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a number of other cases. There's been cases where uh, evidence has been excluded because, in part, uh, police haven't acted compatibly with charter rights. So there's a case of Carba and the Magistrates Court of Victoria where uh, that was a, um, a random... Um, a random stop of a vehicle and uh, the passenger was asked for his details by police, refused to give his details and things escalated and there ended up being an alleged assault. And the evidence of the alleged assault was ultimately excluded from evidence because the police hadn't acted compatibly with uh, his right to privacy. So that's another really practical example of of the Charter um, doing real uh Doing real work. Um, there's been there's, there's other there's other there's other cases as well where the charters had a real impact in terms of uh, interpretation of the Infringements Act regime and that it has to be interpreted holistically with people's human rights. So that if someone has a um, a condition that um, such as impaired mental functioning or something like that that um, really needed to be brought to the attention of the court or should have been that 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 there is a duty um, on the uh, decision-maker to um, inquire and to make sure that um, that these decisions are made fairly. So that there have been a number of cases where the Charter's had real, uh, real work to do and has made a real difference to people's lives, I think. I'm so glad that that's happened, and I, I suppose when I when I actually made that statement, it probably sounded a little bit pessimistic. But I suppose being in the middle of stage four restrictions, um, one can't help but feel pessimistic right now. Um, in, <laughs> in, ter in terms of the right to protest and you know the repression of the law, and you know I, I do remember that when. When I at the event on Thursday, where, um, where there was Dr. Maria O'Sullivan and there was also yourself and Chris Breen. Um, do you recall there was some type of discussion, and I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit on it because I was wanting to talk about it a little bit more, but the the event finished, and I believe Mike, um, you made a comment about political freedoms under the Human Rights Charter, and the danger of the state emergency and protest 
and the right to trial by jury. And, and you were speaking about that. And how, how what, what does that mean in, in practice in regards to the Charter, in, in terms of a potential threat? Well, I, I think there's a couple of points there. I think because we are in such extraordinary times, there's been yeah. uh, a number of significant reforms, um, legislative reforms that are... Um, in Victoria at the moment, including um, now for the first time uh, the ability to have a judge alone criminal trial. Previously in Victoria, it had to be um, trial by jury. And so there's an issue, there'll be an issue when these, uh, um, when the state of emergency ends, hopefully, uh, and there's an issue about what more stay on the books and what are, uh, and, um, and, and what is sunsetted, what, what, what no longer uh, affects us, uh, there's going to be um, a number of difficult decisions to be made. And that's one example of it may be the case that um, whilst this measure of trial by judge alone was introduced in part because of the, or significantly because of the pressures on the courts and the pandemic, it may well be that um, the legislature decides to keep that option um, for accused persons. Um, there was a significant um, issue in the ACT where they introduced judge alone trials, but it wasn't um, with the consent of the accused. And uh, there was going to be a, a High Court challenge in relation to that. There was already a, a decision which effectively neither the accused person nor the uh, nor the uh, prosecution wanted to have a judge alone trial. But um, the judge had decided that a judge-alone trial was appropriate, and so that was going to be challenged. But they've decided to um, amend that regime. In Victoria, at the moment, um, it has to be um, by uh, consent of the accused to have a judge-alone trial. Um, the, the problem is going to be, um, and it's recently been announced, that, um, that there aren't going to be jury trials in the county court uh, for the rest of the year, um, the difficulty is going to be that there's going to be a very significant pressure uh, on uh, people to have judge-alone trials, particularly where they're in custody. And even when things get back to normal, um, it, when things get back to normal and jury trials resume, there may well be such a significant backlog that there will be a really strong pressure um, particularly, as I said, those who are remanded in custody to uh, push ahead with a judge-alone trial because it would just take too long. Um, so, so one would hope that, yeah, and, and that, so one would really hope the government will um, give significant resources to the courts to enable jury trials to resume, resume as soon as it's safe to do so, so that people actually do have a um, a real choice um, uh, because because if if uh, if the di difference is having a judge alone trial or languishing in in custody for three years, you know, not being able to get bail because of these very stringent um, bail reforms that were introduced um, over the last couple of years, well, then that's not really a choice at all. So no, that's an example, not. I suppose, of the the some of the some of the difficult um, paths ahead. I think for um, for, for us in, uh, as Victorians. And particularly affecting marginalised communities as well. And just one final question, because we're going to be speaking with Felicity presently. But just wanted to know what your impressions were of the panel and, and on Thursday, and what you thought was achieved. It was. 
I, I thought, uh, I'm probably biased, but I thought it was an interesting panel. I think there was a broad uh, range of discussion. Uh, I think it was great to have uh, Chris there giving his, um, you know, um, practical experience in relation to what it is to organise and to protest. And, um, and then equally to have Dr O'Sullivan, who spoke um, uh, on a wide range of topics, but including the implied freedom of political communication, which was very interesting and relevant to um, protest action and attempts to limit protest. Uh, what what will be very interesting is, as, as your listeners are probably aware, um, Chris was involved in the Good Friday protests at the Mantra Hotel in Preston on behalf of the refugees and asylum seekers that are detained at that uh, facility and... Um, and he was charged with incitement, um, a very, very rarely used criminal uh, offence, criminal charge, and uh, there were over $43,000 worth of fines issued. That was back on Good Friday, and there's a live issue. The matter's before the court, so can't talk about it too much, but there will be a live sure. issue about the interpretation of uh, the stay-at-home directions, including uh, whether or not the charter may affect the interpretation of those stay-at-home directions because uh, it could be argued, for example, that, um, that, that, that that protest was for the purpose of trying to raise attention and pr protect the rights of a very vulnerable cohort, um, the refugees, uh, and uh, that really the activity was conducted on care and compassion grounds. And that's, of course, an exception in relation to the stay-at-home directions. So that's an example of where the Charter, like some of the other examples I referred to before, might actually have some real work to do if there's, a, if there's potentially competing interpretations of those exceptions and one can be interpreted consistently with freedom of expression and peaceful assembly. It was a, it was a socially distant form of protest. It was a car cavalcade, so it's not as though it's like the protests over the last couple of days where people have been in close contact and proximity to each other. It was done in a responsible, socially distant manner. Um, there may be a real issue as to whether the Charter has work to do for those protesters. Yeah. Absolutely, Mike. Look, thank you so much for, for coming onto the program. And I believe you've also been um, a big part of Liberty Victoria over a decade, isn't it, as well? Absolutely. I've been very fortunate to be involved with Liberty and I should say just that we're a partner as well, Liberty Victoria of covidpolicing.org.au and there's a number of organisations that we're in partnership with uh, as part of that group and I'd urge anyone that has a difficult experience with uh, policing of these infringements or if they just want to read some of the experiences of people in the community with these uh, infringements um, to get on the covidpolicing.org.au uh, website. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's where people can come and document um, what's happening, their experiences with the police. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming onto the program, Mike. And, and before we actually um, move on to Felicity, just to, to say to listeners, a bit of a correction there, um, and I'll introduce Felicity properly um, later on, Mike, but I just wanted to quickly introduce the next event because... With the remote um, work that I do from home, it's always difficult to do lengthy introductions because we have to have announcements while we put people through on the phone. <laughs> it's the compliments of the COVID, Mike. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you think? 
<laughs> what do you do? So I'll just quickly introduce Felicity, if I may. So virtual discussion featuring Dr. Nicole Rogers, Southern Cross University, and Felicity Jerry, QC, Barrister Deacon, on innovative legal debate, defences sorry, for protest. Um, there'll be an event on the 11th of September for that, and I'll talk about that later um, and in more detail. Mike, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and Thanks, I hope Marissa. we can have you back for future updates. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thanks a lot. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And we're going to be speaking with Felicity presently. And this is a continuation of the discussion of repression and the law. And Felicity will be speaking at an event coming up on the 11th of September. It's a Zoom event and you'll need to register. And to do that, go to www.activistlegalsupport.org. Hello, Felicity. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you, Felicity, and my apologies if if it's a bit rustic um, because we're doing a lot of remote work um, from home for the radio show. No, I completely understand. I think I call myself a keyboard warrior now rather than a barrister, (laughs) but thank you again. (laughs) Thank you. Now, Felicity, can you just introduce yourself and and just give listeners a little brief overview of, of some of your work that you've done? Yeah, so I'm Professor Felicity Gerry, Queen's Council. That means I'm a senior barrister. Um, I work nationally and internationally from Crockett Chambers in Melbourne and Libertas Chambers in London. And I'm also Professor of Legal Practice at Deakin University. So generally my work involves serious crimes. So I did three back-to-back terrorism trials last year in the Supreme Court in Melbourne, um, or it involves cases with an international element, so human rights issues, or I've just been doing some work on climate change law and international logging. So um, serious issues that cover both corporate and criminal spaces where there's a human rights issue. So complicated law and difficult clients usually, or sometimes a combination of the two. Wow, international law. I'll have to chat to you about that sometime. Yeah, Um, yeah. I'm just doing some work on international torture and complicity in torture and genocide. So, yes, I've got plenty to say on that too. Oh, I can just imagine. In fact, the Doing Time show does a lot of work on genocide. 
um, of, of in particular First Nations people all over the world, looking um, with a special emphasis on Aboriginal deaths in custody. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It's a really interesting topic, and particularly, you know, at what point do you say there's still a non-international arms conflict in in Australia? It's quite interesting. So I'd definitely be keen to talk about that on another occasion. Absolutely. So, Felicity, it's COVID-19 stage four restrictions, and there's been a lot of quite a few enforced lockdowns and a lot of civic unrest um, in Victoria and there has been a lot of repression, hasn't there? And it's it's quite a, a concern. I'm wondering if you could just talk about some of the issues um, that, that have happened during COVID-19 and, and I suppose as a preamble to the 11th of September, and I believe you're going to be one of the speakers um, at the event organised by Melbourne Activist Legal Support. Could you just talk a little bit about what you know, what your impressions are, and you know what you see are the issues? Yeah, I, I think it's quite important to understand how human rights work. It's often said that there are no human rights in Australia, and that isn't really true. Um, there's no Bill of Rights where there should be, but it doesn't mean there are no human rights. Particularly in Victoria, there is a really interesting framework. So without getting too loyally and trying to keep it interesting for your listeners, we, we all have a right to health. So that means that we have the right to the highest attainable standards of health. And Australia is committed to that in a range of ways, committing to international treaties and implementing health laws and health mechanisms. And what that means is we have the right, if you like, to be protected from COVID-19. So we've got measures in place to try and ensure that the community is distant and that we, uh, the decision that's been taken in Australia is to try and eradicate um, COVID-19 and not to have any other sort of uh, approach. Uh, But that also means this right to health means that you should not have your health adversely affected by the very measures that are brought in to combat COVID-19. And that's not a balancing exercise. We don't say, well, you've got a right to be healthy and you haven't. Everybody has the right to highest attainable standards of health. So that's people in public housing, prisoners, uh, women who are at risk of domestic violence, a range of everybody, no matter what their circumstances. But the, the the directions when they come into force are far more likely to affect people who are already vulnerable. Um, and the measures that have taken place, um, for example, in prisons, are far more likely to affect people who are already vulnerable, particularly women and children, First Nations people, people with existing health problems. So these are are tough decisions for government to make, but the law is really interesting because what it then says is, well, um, within the Public Health and Wellbeing Act, it says we have to have community engagement, transparency, accountability and proportionality. So we've got to make sure that the measures are proportionate to the risk, so we're not overdoing it, if you like. And then we have to make sure that everybody is publicly informed, that the community are engaged and that there's a sense of accountability. And I think what really troubles me 
is the lack of that last part. The law actually says the community should be involved up front in strategic planning and in decision-making. Now, what we tend to see is the police, the health and the state, the politicians, we don't see community representatives. I think Brett Sutton is now on a tour, speaking to the Rotary and so on, but it, really we should have community representatives at that same high level as police, um, politics and health. And we haven't seen that at all, even though politicians have tried to ask a lot, answer a lot of media questions. That really doesn't do it for me. Um, and there ought to be higher level community representation. But in terms of accountability... I could go on for a very long time, but the best example I, get, I can give is in England and Wales, they reviewed all the charges under the coronavirus legislation, as it's called there, various different laws, and under one of them, they found that 100% of the charges by the police were unlawful. 100%. Wow. So the police didn't know what they were doing, and... That's a really useful review. And then there are now regular posts saying that compliance by the police is now improved, so they're not wrongly charging people. And we haven't seen that in Victoria. And it's not hard. They must know how many infringement notices they've issued and what the issues were and how they've been, um, how they've been distributed. And it yeah, makes sorry, it really hard for... Yes, go on. That's Sorry. really it's, no, no, no. This is all good. It's, I'm really happy that it's really useful what what you're talking about. It's tremendous. But I, I suppose I just wanted to ask a question there in regards to what about what happened with Chris Breen though? Because is, isn't that unlawful? I mean, I know we well, can't no. talk too much about the case. No, I'm not. I'm not going to talk about particular cases. But if we're okay. talking about um, infringements of a right to protest for example. Sure. Okay. That, yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I've given you the law on rights to health. That's what we call yes. non-derogable. Everybody's got yes. that right. You have to take positive steps mm. to make sure everybody's healthy. Now, other rights can be limited. So your right to assemble and protest is not what we call a non-derogable right. It is a right that you can limit in certain circumstances. So you might have significant l limits on general gatherings, meeting your friends, going to the park and so sure. on. But in my view, you can't have significant limits on those fundamental rights like the right to assemble and protect because sometimes that's all you've got. When you're in an emergency situation with very coercive powers, the only real right the community have is to stand up and protest, particularly if they're not involved in the high-level community engagement. So something like the Black Lives Matter movement across the world globally, really important political issue, you might have limits on the potential ways in which protests can, can be managed. And we had an example with the drive-by at the Mantra Hotel. But yes. we really, in my opinion, to remove the right to protest politically altogether would be disproportionate. It wouldn't be an acceptable move for a government to make. So, Thank you, yes, what, that's, that's what I was looking for. Okay. Yeah, and what troubles me is if you leave it up to the individual, if you don't have police accountability and you leave it under, up to the individual to challenge, then you're putting human rights burdens on individuals and they are risking their personal circumstances. Correct. Whereas if you have a state mechanism to make things accountable, to allow for protests, 
maybe with certain arrangements, you're not going to be denying people access to justice or placing those burdens on individuals. You're actually creating what the law expects, transparency and accountability. So I, I'm definitely of the view that people do have the right to politically protest. That doesn't necessarily mean you've got the right for thousands of people to just come outside and protest, but that might depend on the issue. Um, so the longer we are in lockdown, the more likely it is people are going to feel that their health and their rights are being affected and they're much more likely to, A, want to protest and, B, be entitled to exercise those rights to protest um, as part of our political democracy. Um, but well, there, there really hasn't been a foundation though. for that. Yeah. No, and it depends on the foundation. You know, if it's climate change emergency, there's an emergency. If it's Indigenous rights, there's clearly serious issues around Black Lives Matter in Australia. Other general political issues may not carry the, the sufficient weight for a mass protest, but that doesn't mean you can't have some form of potentially socially distant protest. It doesn't mean every protest has to be done online. Well, that's so, true. Look, I'm generally of the view that we are entitled to do these things, but we, you do yeah, need to think yeah. about the circumstances in which you're doing them. That, you know, Felicity, what you're saying is true. However, I don't think a, um, a lot of police or a lot of governments would, would be of that view during COVID. Absolutely. And I think there are real problems around communication as well, because... Um, as we heard from your last speaker, first of all, we don't know what the interpretation of care and compassion would be, and we don't know what the interpretation of an emergency would be, and we don't know whether something like the George Floyd killing would create a sudden and extraordinary emergency for which might be the basis for arguing that a protest was acceptable, I suppose, is neutral language. But what we also don't hear from government is that um, if you breach a direction, there is a defence of reasonable excuse. So it might depend not just on the interpretation of the exceptions to the directions, but also on whether what people are doing is reasonable. And uh, we do hear the police saying we do exercise our discretion and we ask people to move on and we don't immediately find them. But who decides what's reasonable and what's not? Well, for that to go to court, it means some individuals got to challenge their infringement notice, risk a criminal record and risk their fine going up. So you end up with a lack of access to justice because people are too frightened to challenge. Yeah. You know, and when you're sitting in public housing and you've had 500 police officers outside your door, you're going to be frightened of challenging anything. You need of course. legal yeah. support. So. It's a very frightening situation for a lot of people and it is worrying that government is not being openly accountable and, and not, for example, publicising that you can have a reasonable excuse. Now, that, again, it doesn't mean everybody can suddenly run outside and congregate in mass crowds, but there has to be an understanding that we have rights to do reasonable things, particularly in emergency and for care and compassion reasons. And if the police don't understand that, that's, it, it, that's very worrying indeed, isn't it? You know, in Hong Kong, we've got protests where it's suggested that you have to ask permission to protest, whereas in Australia, it's a right. I hope that it remains a right. 
Yeah, well, there's certainly an implied right in the Constitution that you have political communication, and I don't think you can have political communication without assembly, without protest, in many circumstances, not all. There are only certain situations where you need to come out and physically protest. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean, well, I want to physically protest lockdown because it's been going on too long. It might, you might need some basis to say this is seriously affecting our health. This is no longer necessary because of the data. It can't just be based on opinion. There has to be something political worth protesting about. And I think we see that in the protests relating to Black Lives Matter, climate change and migrants being held in tension in places yes. like the Mantra Hotel. These are serious reasons that require political protest, in my opinion. So, Felicity, can we go back to the to an earlier point you made in our discussion? And you were we were alluding to England, and I think I believe you were saying that. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. That it's in regards to the law that police acted unlawfully. Yes. Yeah, so they have their own. Yeah, they have their own laws. So, like we have the Public Health and Wellbeing Act. They have the. Uh, coronavirus legislation, various other laws. And what they did was they got the equivalent of the DPP, which in England is known as the Crown Prosecution Service, to review all the charges under those laws. So here, what you do is you review all the charges under the Public Health and Wellbeing Act. You have a look at all the infringement notices, everybody's been charged with whatever they've been charged with, and say, have these been lawfully done? Are the police, for example, targeting particular communities? Is there a level of discrimination? And certainly in New South Wales, there's been some data to suggest that the police are indeed targeting particular communities, not based on the level of infections and cases for COVID-19, but where there's an inference it's targeting um, a particular cultural community, so uh, usually black people. Um, so I see no reason why that can't happen in Victoria. They must have the records. They must know what they are. And if the police can understand where they've made mistakes, got it wrong, been unlawful, affected people significantly, that can be done by a review. And you try getting that information if you're an individual. You try bringing an individual case that affects everybody. It's really hard work. extremely difficult. Extra. Really, fact, really hard work. Yeah. No, it is, and who it is can fund it? And what about the costs and all of those things yeah. that stop people doing it? And therefore, they lack access to justice. And that's what impunity means. It means the police then operate in a culture of impunity because they're not assessing, they're not auditing themselves. In business, you'd audit yourself. It's effectively an audit to say, are we doing things properly? There comes a point where you can't just say you are, you actually have to demonstrate that you are and Absolutely. and that I think is a significant problem and I always give that as an example because if there is a jurisdiction that can do it that has a human rights mechanism as England does Victoria has a human rights mechanism in the charter the constitution protects political communication there's really no excuse for not having a level of accountability that includes reviewing what you're doing I hope that does happen because Victoria, I'm sorry, but Victoria has a long way to go before racial profiling is eradicated. 
Yeah, look, that's a, that's a serious global problem. I think there are le- severe levels of discrimination in state conduct across yes. Australia. Uh, there's some terrible treatment of people who are, for example, in Syrian camps. There's an attitude towards certain types of people that infects politics in Australia um, and challenges the sorts of human rights mechanisms that Australia has signed up to. So there's this bizarre disconnect between what Australia is committed to um, to what Australia does. So I don't think Victoria is exempt from that. Oh, no, of but course. The, the good news is that Victoria does have a charter, but also in this Within the Public Health and Wellbeing Act, there are two sections, sections eight and nine, which require these accountability, transparency, proportionality, all this language I'm using, literally comes from the laws that Parliament voted on in Victoria. So in an emergency, they said, we're going to do all these things. So if they're not doing them, they're not complying with the very thing that Parliament voted on. So that's a serious problem. And at the end of that are very vulnerable people being significantly affected by lockdown direction. It's been really great having you on the show. And in fact, it's always good to have someone like you, Felicity, on the show as a, as a lawyer to give listeners a fresh perspective and, and, to, and a legal perspective as well, because often what tends to happen with this show is that we have people from marginalised communities that are deprived of a voice. And it's always good to have someone on as well to talk about the legal context. So I wanted to thank you very much for coming on. You're welcome. I know I rattle on a bit, but I want anybody in marginalised com- communities to know that we are here. The law does can support them. There yes. are situations in which we do shout and say what we can on their behalf. It's important to hear the voices of community. So I think your your show uh, shouldn't necessarily hear from people like me all the time. I think the community voice is very, very important. I don't like to speak on behalf of others, but together with oh, others, no, no, or no. being helpful, I think is really important. It's not really... I don't think you were doing that, though. I think the reason why I invited you <laughs> is, really, is really to to discuss the event and to talk about things from a legal perspective, which you've done very successfully, and I wanted to to thank you for that. You're welcome. I I think it's important that we try and understand how the democratic frameworks work. You can't just do anything you like, but at the same time, you shouldn't have your health and well-being and rights to political communication infringed to a point that they can't be exercised. And that's supposed to be how the law works. That's exactly right. And we look forward to to um, hearing you speak on the 11th of September along with um, other speakers. And if people wish to register, go to www.melbactivistlegal.org.au. Thank you very Thank much you. for that. Yes, I'm really looking forward to that. That would be lovely. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take You're care welcome. of yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Hi, everyone. My name's Robbie Thorpe. 
I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website, 3cr.org.au, or you can ring on 94198377. 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well, by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show and it's approximately 4.49 and I'd like to thank our guests for coming onto the show. Thanks so much to Mike Stanton and also Felicity Jerry for coming on and talking about the upcoming Mel's event um, on the 11th of September. We've got a couple of minutes left um, of, of our show and um, just wanted to... Um, just make a very, very quick announcement in regards to Auntie Tanya Day. And Auntie Tanya Day um, died in custody um, in 2017. And it's been brought to my attention, actually, that there's not going to be any criminal proceedings against the police Um that that um that were in the cells for, for Tanya for Tanya Day, and the family is understandably very upset about this. They've done quite a lot of media interviews about about this situation, and in the next couple of weeks, I'm hoping to um to to actually interview a family member about that. It's 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 actually very sad that this has happened. It's it's. Uh, it's indicable of a systemic racism about the fact that police are not being held to account and it's always about police investigating police and as I've said so many times on this show, it's really about being able to set up civilian review boards where, um, as I said, police are not investigating police. Anyway, so it's goodbye from Marissa and a special cheerio also out to Pete and Rob as well who can't be here. Um, stage four restrictions, still still working remotely from home um, to produce the Do and Time show. And we're going to be going out pretty soon with our theme song, Blackfellow, Whitefellow from the Rumpy Band.
and Beyond Zero will be up next.